Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio. I'm your host, Andy Olson, proprietor of EchoZoe.com. This is episode number 33 for January 2011. Thanks for joining me. This month, Patrick Shalopsky of ShareYourFaith.org returns to discuss another essential of the Christian faith. In case you're new to the podcast, Patrick first joined me two years ago in episode 9 to discuss the seven essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Then a year ago in episode 21, he returned to discuss the doctrine of the atonement in more depth. This time, we discussed the doctrine of the Incarnation. I apologize for the audio quality. While it isn't terrible, it wasn't wonderful either. I'm learning to use some of my new equipment, and this was my first in-studio interview since getting the new hardware. If you're an average Joe, you probably won't notice up most of it, but audio files will pick up on some of the technical issues. Please bear with me over the first few episodes of 2011 while I work out the technical side of things. Uh, the audio will certainly improve with experience. With that, thanks again, and here's my discussion of the Incarnation with Patrick. Well, welcome back, Patrick. It's really great to have you back. Thank you very much for having me. You were on in January in 2009, yeah. and we did the Essentials of the Christian Faith. Yeah, we went through a list of seven of them. And then you came back in January of 2010, mm-hmm. and we talked about... The Atonement. The Atonement. Right. And I'm a little out of it today, so I, I'm glad that you're on top of things. <laughs> and being on January, two Januarys in a row was a bit serendipitous at the time, but when we realized what we had done, we decided, let's do this. We can make a habit out of let's it. Let's make a habit out of it. So, All right. January 2011 is not serendipitous or, serendipitous or coincidental. So today we're going to talk about the Incarnation, which is another one of your essentials. That's right. You did a little bit of pre-show. You did a lot of prep here, and I was I'm really... Thankful for the effort that you've put into this before we get started. Oh, sure. Happy to do so. We we talk about the Incarnation, and why don't you set up the Incarnation and maybe what is the doctrine of the Incarnation and why is it important? Okay, yeah. It's important because, like all the essentials, it really defines what we as Christians believe. It defines the faith. It defines the parameters of the faith. All the essential doctrines are those doctrines which really tell us what we believe in it in its core. That is, to be a Christian is to believe these things and to use these things in life to apply them. And if you go against one of these things, you're outside the bounds of, of Christian faith. And if you teach something outside of these things that is contradictory to these, these essentials, you're teaching heresy, which is a very severe and harsh term, but it's used in the Bible. And it's used all throughout history, and it's a very serious thing to commit heresy against God and God's word. So God will be judging teachers who teach heresy, and God will be holding Christians accountable even for what we teach. And so we have to be careful to understand the essentials and to um, teach them rightly and apply them rightly. So the incarnation specifically is a one of the essentials that I think kind of gets skimmed over a lot of the time mm-hmm. because it's not something there's a lot of controversy about. I think most of the other essentials, there are splinter groups, cults, even big world religions that believe contrary to some of the other essentials that still claim to be Christian or at least have Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. But the incarnation is one that most groups get right and Christians pretty much assume that it, assume it and take it for granted. Mm-hmm. But I, so the heart of the, the incarnation, when you say that, the heart of it is the, is the fact that Jesus became a man, a human being. Yeah, absolutely. And so 
when you say that others, like cult groups and stuff, don't differ with this, we think of like the Jehovah's Witnesses would not deny that Jesus was a man. That's right. Or the Mormons wouldn't deny that Jesus was a man. Uh, yes, that's right. At least not in this. There is some issues with Mormonism and the incarnation, but 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 in general, yes, Jesus is a man in every religion or teaching that that I know of that involves Jesus in it. So, okay. So, but uh, let's define the doctrine and and we can explore um, the consequences of it. I'll read this twice and just uh, hopefully your listeners can listen closely and just let these words sink in and understand what they mean as I say them. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, fully human and fully divine. He is the very God in very human flesh. He was not a new human-God hybrid, but is one person with two natures. So let me read that again and we can think through this. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, fully human and fully divine, the very God in very human flesh. He was not a new human-God hybrid, but he is one person with two natures. And really the, the doctrine of incarnation is summarized by that very well, and it's not a whole lot more complicated than that. We'll get into some of the, the details as we go forward here, but if you remember that it's that Jesus was a human and that he was God, and that these two natures coexisted in one person, you've got it. And you understand what each of those words mean. I didn't use any complicated theological language to mm-hmm. explain that. I used words like person and nature and human and God. And hopefully we have an intuitive understanding of what those mean. And I think if you get that right, you'll have the incarnation right, that doctrine correct. So in your, your statement that you read twice, Jesus was born of a virgin, fully human and fully divine. Mm-hmm. As we stated before with the cults and, and that, and other splinter groups, we don't get a whole lot of disagreement on the fully human. It's the fully divine where we differ. Right. Uh, for instance, going back to Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses would dev- deny that he's fully divine. And the Mormons would give him divinity, but they dilute that divinity by saying that you and I can become equally as divine as Jesus is or God the Father. Sure. So can we talk a little bit about that? nuance of this incarnation and how we do have both natures, both yeah. human and divine in Jesus Christ? Certainly. Jesus is fully divine, and that, that's a point that's emphasized over and over again in the New Testament and, the, and even the Old Testament. You can actually, I actually have a, I think it's about four sides of one sheet filled with Bible references. Not four sides of one sheet. <laughs> four sides of two sheets of paper. Uh, filled with Bible references, not the whole verse, but just references, just explaining and and different sides of how Jesus is God. Jesus is fully divine. Jesus is fully God. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is something that people have doubted over the centuries. Because let's face it, we can't handle that the leader of a world religion is actually God. Right? Mm-hmm. We want to lump Jesus in with Muhammad and Buddha and and Krishna and how, however many other religious leaders and teachers and kind of venerate him on a human level and not really go beyond that. Mm -hmm. But the Bible doesn't allow for that. Over and over again, um, Jesus is shown to be God. He has the attributes of God. He's testified to be God. Uh, He's worshipped as God and so forth. So 
in the interest of time, I'll just give one verse that's the clearest in the Gospel of John in chapter 1. John's whole point is to show Jesus as God and to show who he is to us so that we can be saved. That's why John wrote this book, the Gospel of John. And so John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if, if you skip ahead to verse 14, you find out what that word is. The word became fleshed and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. So the bottom line is that John 1.1 says that Jesus was God explicitly. And this isn't a mistaken translation. Um, you can look at it very carefully and it's very obvious that John intended to say that Jesus was God. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he says that many times throughout his gospel. And so, you know, we could get into a lot of other verses that talk about Jesus' divine nature. Uh, he's fully God, and any doctrine of the Incarnation has to first acknowledge that. We could discuss also how Jesus, I mean, in this verse also, it says he was with God, that he was with God in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So Jesus pre-existed, he always existed, he's God, he is eternal, he never did not exist. Mm -hmm. um, that's an important part of Jesus' nature as well. Um, he's equal to the Father, and we did a little bit on the Trinity in two years ago in January. Mm -hmm. But if we do a whole session on the Trinity, we'll see the importance of the relationships within the Godhead and so forth, and how uh, they're, the three persons of the Godhead are co-equal, and what all that would mean, right? Mm -hmm. But for now, we'll say Jesus is fully God, and He came to be born on this planet. As a human. Now, I use words like human and planet because that's the way we talk today. They didn't use the, those terms so much in biblical times. You know, they thought more of the world rather than planet because they can't conceive of the solar system and so forth and sure. galaxies and everything. And then human because um, they would say became a man. Obviously, he did become a man. The important thing with the incarnation is that he became a person, a human person. Mm -hmm. And so I like to use those terms for those who might, for some strange reason, take exception if I said he became a man. Of course, he didn't become a woman. He became a man, that he's male. And so... In a, an important distinction, however, the purpose of the discussion isn't necessarily his gender, but his humanity. Right, that's what I'm getting at here, is that Jesus took on human flesh when he was conceived. And that's shown his humanity. He, he's a full human, just like you or I. Uh, his humanity is body, soul, and spirit, just like you and I. You can't say that, well, we'll get into the natures and, and, the, and the parts, but you can't say that Jesus' soul was God and his body was human. That doesn't work. Um, no, he's a, actually fully human mm -hmm. in every way. And He was hungry. He experienced pain. Oh, yeah, all the, the oh. traits and, and things that humans do that God doesn't do, Jesus did. He's hungry, experienced pain. Uh, he learned... He went through life. He grew. He was able to – just let me back up a second. The learning aspect is is one that people don't think of much because they think, mm -hmm. well, what? Jesus was God and yet he had to learn? Well, yeah, he had to learn in, in a sense and we'll get into why that is. But yeah, if he were born today, he would have to learn to brush his teeth. He would have to learn to use a computer. He would have to learn to uh, take care of himself in the way that, that humans do. Right, and so he—it's he, not like he was a Superman in the cradle in the manger. Right. He didn't stand up and, and, yeah. uh, and walk out of the manger and, and right. use the 
a porta potty in the back. Right, and we know that because it he says, needed a diaper at the time, just like any sure. other human baby. Right, right. So he had all these human characteristics, and and in fact, his human life is shown in the Gospels. He obeyed his parents. He followed human customs. He uh, grew. Uh, Luke two. Verses 40 through 52 show some of these, and I'll just uh, read some of those verses. In Luke 2, it says, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And in between there, there's the story of, of Jesus um, lagging behind in the temple while his parents left and so forth. So very human things. It, I think this story was included in part to show Jesus' humanity uh, and to show that he was a normal person. He was a normal 12-year-old child. Now, he wasn't exceptionally bright. He was God, right? He was an exceptionally bright 12-year-old child. Mm -hmm. As a human, as well, he was blessed by God. He was being guided by God, by the Holy Spirit, his whole life to, to, to live this life, to do God's purpose, uh, eventually to die on the cross for our sins and to be risen from the dead. And this whole life was being guided by God. So yes, he was in the temple and he taught them and, he, and they were amazed by his teaching. But he was teaching them as a man in their eyes, and they everyone saw him as a man. I think the medieval art depicts Jesus and, and Mary and Joseph as having a halo, and especially Jesus. He's always the brightest one, right? And and he's if he's uh, teaching his disciples in art, he might be standing taller and look more glorious. But Jesus appeared as a normal man to those around him. He did not appear as some special God figure that they could recognize through physical traits. He was a, a regular guy in that sense. So, And that's almost, I mean, you sit down and even have a cursory reading of the New Testament should be fairly obvious because a lot of people just didn't see that divinity in Jesus when oh, he was right. walking the earth. His own family, for the most part, before his crucifixion, uh, his siblings didn't understand that he was the Messiah, that he was divine. They they would have scoffed at such an idea. And for many of them, it wasn't until after the resurrection that they realized, my brother right. is the Messiah. Right. Yeah, I'm reminded of James, who probably had that kind of experience, his brother James. Um, absolutely. And, and even just think at his death, Pontius Pilate is depicted in the, the Gospels as being someone who is very intrigued and confused and didn't understand what was why they wanted to kill Jesus and what what he should do and so forth, but he never mentioned anything about Jesus having a special appearance about God or as God, I should say. He he didn't. There was nothing to intrigue him to that. It was all the reports of others that he went went on to, mm -hmm. and so yeah, he obviously appeared to everyone around him as a normal man and uh, in direct appearance. Now. The things that he did, miracles, he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he claimed to forgive sins and he accepted worship, that shows that he's God, right? So he is doing things that only God can do and yet he appears to be just a man. So, 
And throughout the New Testament, we have people referring to him as God in various ways. So we know both are true. And and if I, we finally come to believe that this is a very important point to know he's human and he's divine. And we cannot try to separate those two and, and say he's more of one or the other. He's both. He's fully human and fully divine. And um, that is really the doctrine of the Incarnation, to realize that it's not half human and half divine. Mm. It's not some new hybrid that you put them, put the two together and it becomes this new thing. No, it's there's, there's still separate natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's one person with both of those natures, and that's the person of Jesus. So you put together a little kind of a set of notes here that mm-hmm. we're going through here. Sure. Yeah, bullet, bullet pointed list, and this, I always like it when we do interviews like that because it uh, keeps the things flowing and makes things easy and stuff. But the next thing you've got on here is your question: How did this happen? Right. How, how did this incarnation happen? I think that's a great question to address. Yeah, yeah, and especially because when you think about it as a person, we're human. We're trying to think about Jesus as a human, but we can't even conceive of this God part being in part in a person and it doesn't make any sense to us well that's a great point because i mean we can use our imagination and, and probably let it run in, in directions that it, it really shouldn't go but when i do that i often think of like uh, a man as a man say creating a robot mm-hmm. you know i, I watch sci-fi i kind of have a sure. little bit of a sci-fi bent so i create data from star trek the next generation oh yeah I, i'm you're dr soong dr soong i whip right. him together right maybe not even data but his brother who has more uh, even, even more capability he's got the emotional aspect right of okay okay so it's kind of analogous then in that sense that that as dr soong i am to data or to lore i am god mm-hmm. right because i'm his creator right and he would be man in the analogy right and so this doctrine of the incarnation raises the question, well, how could I not only create him as, as quote unquote God, maybe mm-hmm. little G God, but how could I become him? How could I become an Android? Right. And that's one interesting thing about science fiction is allows us to explore things that really don't happen and, well, and I say like, form analogies and, and stuff. It's a and, bad analogy. It probably no. is like a place I'm not, I shouldn't necessarily take my mind cause it's going to get into heretical ideas if you push it too far, but sure, sure. It just, it's kind of a allowing us to explore the concept and it mm. really exposes some of the difficulties with the concept. And then we get back to the Bible and we find out, Oh, what's the real truth here? Mm-hmm. Let's forget the exactly. fantasy. And so, but yes, we can't empathize with God. We can empathize to some degree with other men and mm. we can think we can empathize with the person of Jesus to some small extent, but we don't have no idea what God is like. And, and it's foreign to us in a lot of ways. So how does this happen? We really have to take God's word for it. How did it happen? God said in Philippians two, in presenting Jesus as an example for us, he said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, or another term is emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So the short answer to how did this happen, well, it was a miracle of God. Mm-hmm. God made it happen because he's God and it fit with his plan to make this happen. So 
we can't try to really force all kinds of reasons or or um, try to formulate a science behind how the incarnation could come to be. Mm-hmm. We trust God that by his miracle, he did a special act in history in incarnating his son, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this verse is actually a good one to turn to when you have questions about, well, how what does it mean that God became a man? Because... It really doesn't explain how. It just says he took that nature. It, it says that God did it. And so to trust God that, that he's right in doing this is a very good thing. Um, I want to touch on another thing with this verse is that that term, he, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing or emptied himself. That helps to explain or at least put a, a term on what it means for God to be incarnated in Jesus. This emptying, or he made himself nothing. It's a Greek word, kenosis. And we use that term kenosis as a shorthand, at least I have, when talking about an aspect of, of Jesus emptying himself of a divine attribute. And so let's get into that a little bit, what that really means, because I think people can get confused there. Mm-hmm. For Jesus to empty himself in this way is not that... Jesus lays aside his deity. It's not that he takes his God nature and kind of puts it on the shelf and it's gone and it's away from him. Nor is it he gets rid of it and it's no longer a part of him. But instead, it's best thought of as a... Um, uh, he humbled himself. He laid, laid aside in the sense that he's just going to temporarily avoid using his deity or he's going to recognize that as a man, I have to be this way, so I'm going to lay aside or, or ignore my deity for a while as I live my life as a man. Mm-hmm. So he didn't actually lay it aside. He didn't get rid of it or lose any of the attributes of deity. He retained all the attributes of deity. He was fully God the entire time he was on earth, as well as the entire time before and after mm-hmm. he was on earth, right? So... It could be said that Jesus generally veiled his glory in order to accomplish his work on earth. But you'll notice that, yeah, in the sense that he grew and he felt pain and he um, experienced sadness and all kinds of human things where he had to lay aside his deity, you know, God doesn't feel pain in physical pain, right? But mm-hmm. a human did. A human does. So that happened, but then... He didn't always do that. He used his divinity, things that only God could do, many times. And we have to recognize that, that he wasn't just, you know, he wasn't just meek and mild Jesus all the time on earth. He certainly used his divinity to accomplish miracles. Every time he he worked a miracle, he worked it as God. He worked it as man too, but he's he's accessing, if you will. I hate to use that term because Mm -hmm. it's not like... It's not like he can it right here's the difficulty, right? We get into using human terms to explain something that we can't understand. Everything right? is an analogy. Yeah. When you really boil it down, we're just Yeah. So that's the best that we can do to understand this concept. Yeah. It's, so it's I, just to create an analogy. Right. So I, I use that term accessing. He accessed his divinity for a moment every time he did a miracle. Even though accessing doesn't really capture the essence of yeah, how exactly. he's doing it. He 
forgave sins. Only God can forgive sins. Men can't. He taught with knowledge that only God had. He, just for example, in John 4, he was talking with the woman at the well. He said, uh, go call your husband and come back, knowing, and then she confirmed, I have no husband. So Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And the woman said, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Mm -hmm. So there would be no way for Jesus to know that as a man. But God knows everything. Jesus knows everything. So in order to accomplish his work on earth, he used his divinity. And he was retained his divinity all the time. And if I had to guess, I would, I would guess that in all the things Jesus did that weren't recorded in the Bible, he probably used his divinity many, many more times because he was I fully God. the Bible God. says as much, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, and I think it's important to point out that I had a couple of discussions with uh, Justin Peters in, in previous episodes. And Justin Peters addressed Word of Faith doctrine. And one of the teachings that the Word of Faith uh, people teach is this idea that Jesus not only suffered on the cross, but that he had to finish his the atonement and finish his suffering in hell. Mm-hmm. And that during that time in hell, he temporarily lost his divinity. Mm-hmm. That he, he wasn't, for that three days, he wasn't God. Mm-hmm. And Justin Peters pointed out, and this is absolutely theologically true, if there ever was a time when Jesus wasn't God, then he was never God to begin with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, God is immutable. He's mm-hmm. unchangeable. Immutable is just a big word for unchangeable, right? Mm-hmm. So in his nature, he cannot change. God cannot cease being God. And that's a, a really good point that if you think about it, if he demonstrates even for a second that he's not God, he's demonstrating that he's never was God. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a logical proof. It's necessary for if you are God, you have to always be God. Yeah. And if you're not God for one moment, that means there's someone greater than you, and therefore yep. you're not God ever at all. Yep. <laughs> so um, the logic there uh, can save us from a lot of hurt if we believe the wrong thing about Jesus. Yeah. And I don't know really a good time. I have got this uh, another analogy in my mind, and I don't sure. know a really good time to insert this into the discussion. So maybe I'll just jump in. And Go ahead. Yeah. This is something that it's going. I'm going off memory. It's been years since I heard the story. Uh, I, I think it originally started with a man named John Corson, who I think is a Calvary ta- Calvary Chapel. I don't know if he's a pastor or a teacher, I don't know John Corson okay. well. It's yeah, I'm not familiar hand. with him. I heard this somebody who said. I heard this story, it's told by John Corson, so I'm telling it third hand. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the story goes, and, and, and take this just as an analogy, I wouldn't read into it any sort of doctrine or mm-hmm. any sort of um, divine revelation. Sure. But um, the story goes that, that John Corson had a dream. And in this dream, God was trying to illustrate to him what the incarnation entailed through an analogy. And what he did to uh, enlighten John Corson was he took John to a planet that was filled with dogs. And they weren't just any dogs. They were big, fierce, mangy, angry dogs. And he said, John, I love these dogs. And, and these, these dogs are wretched sinners. 
but I want to save these dogs. And I want you to help. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn you into a dog. I'm going to turn you into a chihuahua. And I'm going to send you down to give my message of salvation to these dogs. But that's not all of it. I'm not just going to send you down as a, a chihuahua. These dogs are going to eat you up. They're going to, they're going to kill you. But don't worry, I'm going to raise you from the dead. But the catch is, when I raise you from the dead, you're still going to be a chihuahua. You're always going to be a chihuahua. And like I say, this it's just a, a very, very loose analogy. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus was God himself. Jesus was divine. And John Corson, of course, is not divine and, and can't pay the yeah. penalty of anyone's sin. But I thought it was an interesting story just because it, it really hit home for me. I was a very young Christian when I first heard this. And as a young Christian, we often think about Jesus' humanity, that uh, he he lived as a human, died and was resurrected, and then ascended into heaven. And then we kind of forget his humanity from that point on. And I think it's really important to remember that Jesus is alive today, mm-hmm. and he's a human being today. I mean... In 2011, January, Jesus Christ is a living human being seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Right. From the moment Jesus was conceived unto all eternity, he is fully human. Mm -hmm. For all eternity, past and future, he's fully divine. Yep. So when we, as Christians, because we uh, trusted in Christ and repented of our sins... We're saved because of Jesus' death on the cross. When we go to meet him in glory, he will be fully human and fully divine even there. And he'll have a body. He'll have emotions. He'll have all the personality that humans have. Mm-hmm. But he'll be fully divine and he'll be glorified uh, Well, to the Paul utmost. teaches that we will be like him. Mm-hmm. And clearly, he meant when he said we will be like him, he meant in Jesus' humanity. Right. We, are, we will not become divine as Jesus is, but right. we will be like him as a resurrected human being. Right. So that's a good point. As we read the Gospels and we learn about who Jesus was mm-hmm. in his humanity, we can look forward, in the human side of things anyway, to being that way with him in glory. Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful thing. To think that all the wisdom that Jesus had in his humanity, that we'll get some of that, and we'll get more of it and more of it as, as eternity goes on and on. I mean, even just that aspect of it amazes me. Mm-hmm. And then you can go through all the the attributes of, of men and the virtues of that the Bible lists as being good, and you can look forward to uh, an eternal state of growing in those areas. So, yeah, definitely. So I think we kind of started with the importance of the mm-hmm. incarnation and why mm-hmm. is this doctrine important. And I, I want to circle around back to that sure. for, for a moment. And... Uh, Talk maybe a little bit about why it's important that Jesus became a man. Why couldn't Jesus come to earth as an angel or could come to earth as as God mm-hmm. in some other form? Right. Why did he have to become a man? Okay. The, the biggest reason, I would say, is that he was to be the sacrifice for our sins. And the punishment due our sins... And we're talking about, the if you look back a year ago to the radio show we did on the atonement that was the essence of 
why the incarnation was necessary. Mm-hmm. So and maybe you could listen to this podcast and then listen to the one from a year ago this January. Which would be, let me let me think now. That would be episode uh, 21, I believe. Okay. So the way you would find that quickly and easily is to go to echozoe.com slash 21. All right. Give that a shot. And if I'm wrong, <laughs> check echozoe.com slash 33 for this episode, and I'll have a link to that one. Excellent. <laughs> and I believe the first episode we did on the essentials was episode 9. Okay. So echozoe.com slash 9. Mm-hmm. So if you know the doctrine of the atonement, you have the motive and the reason for the incarnation. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God. As a man, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He uh, went through life fulfilling all of God's law, all of God's desire for him, and he was worthy to be slain as the sacrifice, as the human sacrifice for our sins. See, God forbid human sacrifices in the Old Testament. Instead, he had lambs, bulls and goats, goats that were sacrificed for the sin of the people. And the whole reason that was in place was to point to Jesus as the perfect Lamb of God. Mm -hmm. But God did it with animals because these sacrifices of, of bulls and goats and lambs were not actually meaningful. They weren't. They didn't actually do anything. They were a symbol and a sign. And now, by, nor would human sacrifice. Right, nor would human sacrifice. The only problem with human sacrifice is it's a terrible, bloody, heinous thing that God would never want to have happen because they would be innocent humans being sacrificed to God. And that's not... Relatively speaking. Yeah, relatively speaking. I mean, we have... Yeah. We could get into the, the whole aspect of God's judgment on... Uh, oh, we're all wretched citizens. Yes, right. They all and deserve wrath. And- absolutely. And we see like all the wars in the Old Testament where God exercises wrath and so forth. But the point would be that God generally loves men and wants them to survive, doesn't want to kill them in order to prove a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, least, he wants to give them an opportunity to repent. And it, the longer you right. live, the more opportunity you should have for that. Right. And so God forbade the sac- human sacrifices in the Old Testament. Instead, he put in place the bulls and goat sacrifices and other animals in order to point forward to Jesus. When Jesus came, he was the willing sacrifice, perfect in every way, and able as a human to be sacrificed for the sins of others. Now, also being God, he was able to be sacrificed for all of mankind's sins so that he could pay the penalty. Uh, he was able to, to endure the punishment due all men mm-hmm. that would be saved. So this is the the point of the incarnation is that we needed a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus came to be that perfect sacrifice and he laid down his life willingly. Mm. And for the joy set before him, he was happy to do it. But yet he endured extreme pain and and torment in the process Mm -hmm. to be that sacrifice. I don't want to throw you too much of a curveball, but um, because it's not in your notes and your prep, but... Also, the idea of the the doctrine of the kinsman redeemer, uh, which is very much what the book of Ruth was about, in that uh, Jesus needed to be a kinsman in order to redeem us, mm-hmm. uh, and like the book of Ruth is analogous. It's it's it points to that aspect of Christ's ministry and his his uh, incarnation, his purpose, his the atonement. Right. But uh, 
Paul talks about Jesus being the last Adam. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also tied in with that idea of the kinsman redeemer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a man needed to die for all men. And so the man Jesus came, God in human flesh, to do so. And not only as our redeemer, but as our high priest. Hebrews explicitly talks about where, well, here I'll, I'll read Hebrews 4, verse 15. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And, okay, so the, the readers of Hebrews might be more familiar, but the point here is that uh, there needs to be a mediator. There needs to be someone to come between men and God. This is the system God set up. Mm-hmm. But no man is really truly worthy to be that mediator. But it needs to be a man to relate, to be able to re- relate to us, mm-hmm. to be like us in every way, this verse says, right? Uh, yet without sin. So Jesus was the God-man. He was the perfect mediator as well as the perfect redeemer and the perfect sacrifice. It's also, uh, going back to the kinsman redeemer and, and that whole idea is, it's also why, uh, for instance, it's that, that's, that the angel, the fallen angels have no hope of salvation because Jesus, uh, being God, was the perfect sacrifice, but he he became a man to be a sacrifice for men. And the only way to redeem angels would be for him to become an angel mm-hmm. and give a similar sacrifice as an angel. Mm-hmm. Well, he's already a man. He can't become an angel. So mm-hmm. they're left in this predicament where uh, we were offered salvation, whereas they are without hope. Right. At all. There's no hope at all for them. Right, right. And um, and in that John Corson analogy, he had to become a dog to save the dogs. Sure. Um, all those possibilities, um, even the, the world of angels and demons, the Bible does talk quite a bit about angels and demons, but it doesn't give us the whole background and the whole way that system is set up. And mm-hmm. we really don't know uh, that whole world other than, yeah, there is a picture of most interpreters say one third of all the angels were fallen and have no hope of redemption. And there is that picture in the Bible. So, right. Um, we need to glory, glorify and thank God that we have incarnation atonement and redemption in Christ, mm-hmm. uh, because he didn't have to do that because he didn't do that for the angels. So, um, and if we, in a future session, talk about the resurrection and glorification, that's another thing we have that the angels don't have. He's given us a wonderful gift um, in this complete package of salvation that we must glorify him for. Yeah, and it's totally a rabbit trail, but um, the yeah the the idea that we are going to rule and reign with him, mm-hmm. and you, you think about it, who are we going to rule and reign over? Mm-hmm. Well, if there's God and there's humanity and then there's the angels. Mm-hmm. And humanity is ruling and reigning with God. That mm-hmm. only leaves the angels for us to rule and reign over, mm-hmm. which is quite a quite a trip, I guess. Right, the <laughs> one way to put it. Yeah, uh, that uh, and that would be the the two thirds that didn't fall. Right, it's it's really hard to fathom. It is because we think of angels as being high above us and, mm-hmm. and something we can't Certainly. understand and. Yeah. And we're certainly not deserving of that position. Right. But God has exalted us in Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. 
So um, kind of towards the end of your preparation materials here, you um, address Jesus avoiding being born into sin. And how did he yeah. do that? Oh, we haven't yet talked about the uh, the nature of, of sin and human, human corruption, um, but really quickly, all men are born into sin. We have a sinful nature, which causes us as we grow to commit sins, right? Uh, every sin I commit is not only because of external influences, but because at my core I'm a sinner, mm-hmm. and therefore I commit sins. And so the question is, if the Bible claims that Jesus is without sin, just as in that Hebrews 4 verse we just read, uh, as well as other places, uh, he's a sinless, sinless man. How then, as a man, did he avoid being born into sin? Uh, how did he avoid inheriting that sinful nature and that guilt due sin? Because there is that, it's not just that um, I've been born into sin and therefore I will commit sins. It's also that I have a guilt due my do my original sin mm-hmm. because I inherited this sin nature all the way back to Adam. Therefore, um, God has counted me as a sinner bef- the, from the moment I was conceived and he's counted me guilty from that moment. And h- how does, how does Jesus avoid being involved in that? He is a true man, right? Mm-hmm. He was conceived of the Holy spirit, but Mary was his biological mother, mm-hmm. right? So how does he avoid that? And so the first important point I would say in response to that is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him, that is God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that verse, I think... you chooses its words very carefully, Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5, when he says he knew no sin. Not only that he committed no sin, but that he knew no sin. He, the concept of sin was foreign to him. I think that's an um, inference that, or you can take an inference that Christ didn't even, wasn't familiar with committing sins or even having a sinful nature mm-hmm. out of that verse. So, because if it, if it was something else, it probably would have used a different word. I would have written, he made him to be sin who committed no sin. But it's not just he didn't commit sins. He knew no sin. He, he well, did not have this, that sinful nature. How much of this is a relic of, um, of a kind of a middle English language where to know something in many ways means to experience it? Yes, that's also true. Yeah. So this, this uh, word no, you, I mean, it's a good point. The word no is used... Not just for intellectual fact finding, but also uh, you've experienced it. You know what it's like. You're familiar with the, all the aspects of it, mm-hmm. um, and so yes, and and that fits in right because mm-hmm. Jesus was in essence, in this sense, not familiar with sin. I mean, as God, he was omniscient. He knew what sin was and he understood what it is like in men, but he himself never experienced sin and never could. So. Sorry if I'm being too semantic, but I wanted to just emphasize that verse. Well, that's why I like in interviewing you. You you pick your words well, and you kind of dig in, and um, yeah, uh, you really you get to the nitty gritty on things. Well, good. I, I'm trying to anyway. So anyway, the question was, how does Jesus avoid being born in sin? And basically, I have to claim this reason. Well, we don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. 
Okay. There is one theory, and I'll share it with you just in the interest of uh, maybe this is true, but I kind of doubt it. Um, there in Romans uh, Romans five twelve it says sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And so, and then later in verse eighteen it says one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's the inherited sin. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So the theory here is that man in these verses is literal. It doesn't just mean people, but it means... The gender. It means male persons. So Eve sinned, immediately followed by Adam sinning, and therefore through Adam all of humankind was polluted with sin. And so the the theory here is that sin nature passes down through the male line. You are a sinner by nature because your father was a sinner by nature. Mm -hmm. Your mother also happened to be a sinner by nature. Because she had a father. Because she had a father. But you didn't inherit that guilt from your mother, only from your father. Why? Because of Romans 5, 18 through 19. That's the way Mm -hmm. we know that. Uh, Personally, I'm not convinced by that interpretation. I... The way I see it, it, Romans 5 is talking about people, not men. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sin entered through one man, Adam. Yeah, it does say Adam, right, in another verse. And that's important, and we can talk about that. But bottom line is that uh, I don't think the Bible gives us enough information to really say how sin is passed down. But it does make it clear that sin is inherited. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we trust that. In the verses that tell us about inherited sin, it also tells us about um, imputed righteousness of Christ that we can mm-hmm. have to overcome that. So, so we just kind of deduce this doctrine, mm-hmm. and and I use the term doctrine lightly, but we just kind of deduce this through the scripture we do know, mm-hmm. as, as it doesn't explicitly say, as you said, it doesn't explicitly say that we inherit our sin nature from our Father. Correct. I, I don't think it says that. Now, there are some who really hold that theory, and mm-hmm. I respect that, I guess. But sure. the point is that we can agree with, with those people that, yeah, we do inherit sin one way or the other, mm-hmm. however that works. And Jesus was withheld from that uh, in whatever way that works. And we trust God that he did so. Because Second Corinthians 5 says exactly that, that, that Jesus knew no sin. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess maybe... Uh we could wrap up with, or, or before we wrap up, we could talk about uh, competing doctrines. Yeah, yeah. We've got one in particular here. Sure. Like, for instance, the Immaculate Conception. Right. In Catholicism. In Catholicism. And um, th- this really fits in with what we were just talking about. Because this, the doctrine of Immaculate Conception is how Catholics explain that Jesus didn't inherit any sin. And some listeners might be, have a misconception about, I mean, that's no pun intended, about the Immaculate Conception. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in C- Roman Catholicism, the Immaculate Conception is their dogma that Mary, not Jesus, but Mary, was conceived sinless. So not Somehow. only was Jesus sinless, but Mary was sinless from birth and never committed a sin. Okay. And further, she remained sinless her whole life. And... When sin came into the world, it 
didn't get to her, so she didn't inherit. However, that inherited sin works. It didn't get to Mary hmm. by by the grace of God. Catholics say, and so, and I'll just look at these verses again to see why this isn't true. Because all the emphasis in the in the New Testament is on Jesus being sinless. It never talks about Mary being sinless, and um, it never talks about her being conceived sinless, or even it, it doesn't even talk about her conception at all. And the, the truth is that the Immaculate Conception of Mary is a dogma in Catholicism that started very early on and kind of grew throughout the... I mean, there's church fathers that hint at the Immaculate Conception is of Mary. A, was this kind of handed down through Gnosticism? It may have been, yeah. And, and there may have been some, some philosophies also that came in that sure. said this needed to be the case. And so the church fathers... But, started to talk about it, and then it grew from there all throughout history. Like, the Catholics don't point to any particular scripture. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of false doctrines, false teachings, and I would consider this to be a false doctrine and a false teaching. Yes, me too, if I wasn't clear. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the false doctrines and false teachings have their genesis in a um, a twisting of scripture. They'll, they'll take a, a verse out of context, or they'll turn it on its head in some way. But this one, do they have a verse that they even point to, or is this one where they point to tradition or they, the magisterium or yeah. whatever it is their authority that they? Bottom line, that it is the teaching magisterium authority that the Catholics supposedly have that teaches that brings out this dogma. The closest thing they have to a supporting verse is in Luke one. It said to Mary, "Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear." So. They take that to mean, well, Jesus was blessed, therefore he's sinless, and Mary was blessed, and therefore she's sinless. But that's a, such a big stretch. Well, then you have to almost go through every verse in the Bible that has somebody who's blessed well, and say, well, they must have been born without sin as well. Right, and I mean, I mean if, any kinda... of your, yeah, if any of your listeners are interested, you can go to catholic.org or something and figure out how they defend the Immaculate Conception. Um, but really, yeah, it, it's a doctrine that came about through their tradition. Okay. And finally, in the 1850s, the Pope proclaimed it as a dogma that all Catholics have to believe. And uh, so therefore, it's a doctrine celebrated now in the Catholic Church. And um, really, it's, it's too bad because sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And Mary, we sinned, and she's subject to that death. Mm-hmm. We can glorify God. That that's she- a great point. Mm-hmm. That's that's a great point that uh, that she was subject to death because the Bible also teaches that we die because of our sin. Yes, and if she was sinless, she would be alive today. Mm-hmm. Right, and to show you that one bad teaching results in another, because they have immac- the immaculate conception and sinless Mary doctrine. From there, they go to the assumption of Mary that Uh, she was assumed into heaven without dying, uh, and so that's another. Certainly, is not recorded in the Bible, nor in any other work of ancient history. That's a doctrine that they had to proclaim from the Pope's chair, also to make it a dogma. And um, really, bad teaching to cover up another bad teaching. Yeah, I think really, I mean, no one intended for that to be the case, but I think that's the effect of what has happened. Mm That we have those doctrines regarding this. Mary. You have a, do you have a Catholic background? No. Okay. I thought maybe you did because I don't have a Catholic background. And so mm-hmm. some of these doctrines, I, I got to go through somebody who 
grew up in it and understood it. But yeah, that's not me either. <laughs> not but either. I have studied it a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, there's enough. Uh, growing up in the St. Paul area, there's sure. quite a few Catholics around. And all right, well, is, there aren't really any other big cults or sects or deviant uh, mm-hmm. or groups well, that that deny the incarnation or have any kind of different doctrine of the incarnation. Well, you can definitely point to the Mormons that believe, just really quickly, that they believe that there were other planets that other god, right? Remember that Mormonism is polytheistic. There are other gods besides Jehovah, right? Right. So there was another man on another planet named Jesus who... On Kolob or something? yeah, Yeah, I'm not exactly sure the details, but he became God... Rather than fully existing as God in all eternity, no, he became God in Mormonism. Right. Well, so they that's say Elohim, who was mm-hmm. our God the Father, mm-hmm. Elohim was was a man on the planet. There you go. Kolob yeah. at one time, and that Jesus was his natural offspring. Okay, there you go. And, uh, Sounds like you're a little more familiar with Mormonism than uh, I am. A little bit. And, and I do hope someday uh, to do an episode on Mormonism. Um, I did one last September with Eric Griesaber on Jehovah's Witnesses, mm-hmm. and my hope is to find uh, someone who is an authoritative ex-Mormon mm-hmm. to discuss Mormonism. Yeah, but at some point in the future, we will do a, a Mormon episode. But back to the subject. Well, Elohim yeah, you mentioned. Was, oh, go ahead. Go Elohim ahead. was God the Father. He was a human on the planet Kolob, and he had natural offspring as any other human man does. And uh, Jesus was one of those. I think Jesus was his firstborn son. Mm-hmm. Lucifer was also one of his sons, according to uh, Mormon doctrine. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, I mean they don't they don't deny his. It's kind of a weird thing because they'd almost give him two incarnations, wouldn't they? One yeah. on Kolob and one on Earth. Right. It's a little different, and he was actually a natural. It was only a birth. On Kolob, I don't know. You know, you could get into what well, all the effects I, of as it. As far as I know, I mean, they're both pretty much the same. I mean, like I said, I'm not an expert on Mormon doctrine. I sure. Have a, I, I may have a little better understanding than, an, than the average person, but it's not – I'm no, by no means an expert on Mormon theology. But um, I, I believe they would say that he was both. He was born on Kolob, uh, you know, to, to Elohim and then again on Earth. Mm-hmm. And they believe that that Jesus on Earth was conceived through a sexual union mm-hmm. between Mary and Elohim. Okay, and, and so there would be kind of a double incarnation with their theology. I think. Yeah, and yeah. I might be wrong. Like sure. I said, maybe I mis- misunderstand the Kolob connection. But but I guess what I was getting at was that you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses would have some kind of incarnation. They deny the deity, but they, right. Exactly. So the Jehovah's Witnesses don't say that Jesus is God. So when, as far as I know, they believe in a virgin birth. Yeah, though. it's not really an incarnation at all at that point. Right. But yet, at the same time, he is a spirit being that co- right. preexisted. Well, say, yeah, Michael so, the Archangel, Archangel. So yeah, the, it all mess, it messes. I mean, the it's in- really a Gnostics that denied the incarnation, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. I mean, the Gnostics believe that Jesus was spirit only. The Gnostics believe right. that. Uh, Anything natural, fleshly, was evil, right? And that spirit was good, and all flesh is evil. All spirit is good, and so in right. order for Jesus to be good, he would have had to be spirit only. But we don't really have modern, full-on Gnostics. I mean, we've got some deviant sects here and there that sure. are kind of a 
more like a, a kind of a joke of a cult, I would guess. I mean, yeah, well, small, tiny little sects that don't really get any national exposure. Well, you do run into, I mean, you mentioned the word of faith. There's a little bit of some issues with the nature of who Jesus is. And, and, um, I think if we really look at those who say, uh, that if we hear something and we think, well, is that really, does that really match up with the incarnation? If we just remember the doctrine and we remember, okay, what about this conflicts? I'll, let me read it one more time. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, fully human and fully divine, the very God in very human flesh. He was not a new human God hybrid, but is one person with two distinct natures. Mm-hmm. So, we do, I think, sometimes run into those who have weird ideas that Jesus um, ceased to be God for a while on the cross and then became God again later, like you said, that one, mm-hmm. um, there was one, or in the word in, of faith. in hell, right? You said yeah. there was a, that, or or anything like that, if we encounter it, we have to realize he's one person with two natures. Just really quickly, the, the, the people na- generally, I think, generally, that I mean, that might be, I'm just kind of speculating here, but a kind of a, a thought, a train of thought that people might go down when they're naive to doctrine, but as they grow and learn, mm-hmm. even if they're not necessarily in an Orthodox church, I use small Orthodox, mm-hmm. but they, they'll kind of grow past that, mm-hmm. I think, when it comes to the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, that's an interesting doctrine. Yeah. And then really quickly, I just wanted to, in case you, your listeners encounter the historical heresies regarding the incarnation of the natures of Christ. Mm-hmm. So one was called Apollinarianism. Apollinarian. I can't even pronounce it. Apollinarianism. So that was a teaching that said, the, this is why I meant, made it clear that he's not a human God hybrid. You don't have human nature and a divine nature. So Apollinarianism thought there was, part of it was human, the body part. And part of it was divine, the actual nature. So it was just like God in a human shell. Well, that's not who Jesus was. Jesus was fully human, not just a human mm-hmm. shell. And uh, another one was called Nestorianism. There I'm was glad a, you brought that one up because that's okay. one that's kind of, you know, it's, it's really hard to get our hands on the true nature of God's, you know, mm-hmm. they call it the hypostatic union. Right. But uh, it's really hard to get your hands on that or get really understand it and and that Apollinar- Apollinarianism, mm-hmm. it's hard to pronounce something that... <laughs> Apollinarianism, yeah. That's kind of the natural way to try to understand it, I think, is that, you know, the the body was like a glove and mm-hmm. the spirit was like a hand. And right, yeah. That's kind of what you're describing, I think. Right. So, no, God, Jesus was fully human. That's the important thing to remember mm-hmm. against Apollinarianism. And Nestorianism is a different one where there were two people, two persons... So, in effect, Jesus was a human for this time and, a, and God for that time. And, and as he lived on earth, he acted as one person, then it would switch and he'd be a different person. And, that and uh, bizarre. They, they, you can't even conceive of how that would work, right? No. Um, but th- we know that's wrong because Jesus speaks as an individual. He's one person. Mm-hmm. Never is he referred to, even after he's uh, resurrected. Never is he referred to as as some mystical thing with two people, and it's never confusing like that. It's always assumed to be one person. And then the one that had a little more 
legs throughout history, the little little more followers was called monophysitism. Okay. So the monophysites believed there was one nature, and this is why I said he's not a, a human god hybrid. You don't. You have men, and you have God. There's no man god thing that's both, and not either of those things, right? Um, if I cross a donkey and a horse, I get a mule, right? Mules neither a donkey nor a horse, right? Okay, that's a hybrid. And there's no hybrids when it comes to man and God. Mm-hmm. You can't have a hybrid. Jesus was not a hybrid in this way. You can't combine two natures and make one. Rather, those natures stayed distinct, and he had both throughout his life. And even now, in glory, he has both a human nature and a divine nature. So we need to avoid those historical ones, too. I, I don't see a lot of people claiming them today, but I think if we understand what they are, we can at least see when elements of it get creep into other... Avoid developing new heresies. That's right, yeah. Yep. All right, well, I think we're approaching kind of our target of an hour. Very good. So anything you want to close with or think we did? The only thing I would say is that, back to kind of what we were saying in the middle, the incarnation and the atonement go hand in hand, and and the incarnation happened so that the atonement could happen, and... And really, it's uh, Christmas and Easter, right? We mm-hmm. uh, we celebrate Jesus coming, and we celebrate Him uh, being the sacrifice for yeah, us. Speaking of, I think um, resurrecting. We're recording this on Sunday, January 9th. and I think Orthodox Christmas was like yesterday, something like that. Yeah, they're on the Julian calendar to celebrate yeah, their I holidays. Think it was yesterday, sure. yeah. So Merry Christmas. Well, thanks, uh, Patrick. I think it was. It's always fun to have you in, and, and I enjoy your style and your your efforts when you prep and I, I, I like this little series that we're developing and it's kind of, it wasn't intended to, to be this way, but I like how it's turning out and um, I'm guessing I'm going to see you again next January for another essential. All right. Sounds good. So thanks again. All right. That wraps up our discussion in the incarnation and episode 33 or show notes. Visit echozoe.com slash 33. I welcome your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at podcast at echozoe.com. Also, as always, check the show notes for information on how to sign up for email alerts of new episodes and how to find me on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks again, and Lord willing, I'll be back in February for episode 34.